On this week's Against the Grain, the future of the quarterback position. We're going to break it down with a college and pro expert. Let's go. We are cutting against the grain. Against the grain. Against the grain. Against the grain. Now your host for Against the Grain. Here's Andrew Perloff. Welcome to Against the Grain. I'm your host, Andrew Perloff. I'm here with one half of the outstanding Against the Grain production team, Marvin Prince. We are without Mario Miranda because Mario is actually, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, Marvin, he's working a second job because of his betting losses from last week. Yeah, he's got to do what he's got to do to pay uh, these bookies. Yeah, if he comes in with broken knees. So he, <laughs> he was telling us today these bad beats. Listen to this one. He had the over at 50 and a half in Oregon State, Washington. They had 45 points combined at half and didn't score again in the second half. That's a killer. Then he had SMU Tulsa. SMU up 21 nothing. He had SMU. They lost the game to Tulsa. It was a pick em. I I suffered a little this week. I had Arizona at two and a half. By the way, I, on Sunday morning, we have an email chain. I got to get you in, Marvin. Me, Dylan, who's the big degenerate of the Dan mm. Patrick show, and Mario. I had the Cardinals minus two and a half against the Bills because that, you know why? Because that spread made no sense. I'm like, Vegas must know something. Then they kneeled on the extra point after the Hale Murray killer. And then the other one, I did do very well. I had a feeling, and I guess I should have said on the pod, that the Patriots were going to beat the Ravens. Then the rain started coming down. Patriots are a pretty good team, but I don't want to get distracted here because we have a couple things going on. Paul Burmeister, my old friend from NBC Sports, Radio voice in Notre Dame football, former college football quarterback, had a cup of coffee in the NFL training camp. He's going to break down the future of the position. Every Saturday, Marvin, I turn on the TV, and I see about 18 different quarterbacks who are good enough to play in the NFL. Now, these are, obviously, I'm not a scout. I want Paul to explain, like, what's the difference between a guy who can throw 30 touchdowns and five picks in college and an NFL quarterback? For example, Ian Book on Notre Dame. He looks amazing of late. But no one has him in the first round of a mock. So I, I'm very curious as to how you distinguish with spread quarterbacks what's going on. But before we get into that, I have five against the grain takes from this week. I already tested these out on the Dan Patrick Show. Was shot down pretty hard by Dan. But I'm curious. You're a lot nicer than Dan, Marvin. You gave me thumbs up and thumbs down on these takes. Okay. Number one, Jets GM Joe Douglas, former Eagles personnel guy, former Ravens personnel guy. Genius. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Genius. Thumbs down because I hold the, the the word genius, the words genius and legend, I hold them in high regard. And so if he's not Belichick Brady, okay, he better do a couple more things in order for me to uh, call him a genius. It's all about where your bar is. If you're talking about the Jets, competent equals genius. He's Einstein. Yes, like if that's it's the thing. Jets, yes. Yeah. Compared to the GMs of the past, he is Vince Lombardi, Paul Brown, Bill Belichick, George Hallis, Gil Brandt, uh, every personnel genius in the history of the world rolled into one. Look at what he did. He's had one draft. He got hired after the 2018 draft. He drafted Mekhi Becton, who everyone agrees is amazing, Stud. left tackle. He traded Jamal Adams, a malcontent safety who's incredibly talented, to the Seahawks for two first round picks for a safety. And the Seahawks' defense has been terrible ever since he got there. So I like what he's doing. Here is the problem. And it's, it's time for tough love. He's got to get Joe Flacco out of there. Flacco against the Patriots last week, Thursday night, 
that was too dangerous. Like that looked like a Pro Bowl level quarterback. You're going to win two or three games with that, and the Jags are going to pass you up. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get Sam Darnold back in that with the injured shoulder and all. Get him back on the field and start tanking for Trevor and do it seriously, because the Jags are not joking around. Jake Luton, no. Okay, second take. Steelers are no way going undefeated. In fact, they're losing two games. Oh, you're giving me a big. Oh yeah, maybe three, maybe three. I don't know why how they're undefeated. No, they're not even like this. Isn't even a, a good Steelers no. team so far. No, no, they're a good team. But listen, they got outgamed by the Cowboys. Should have lost that game. The Cowboys, and this is like a slumping Cowboys. Their upcoming schedule at Jacksonville. Listen, Jacksonville took the Packers to the last minute. That's a bit scary. But then Baltimore on Thanksgiving. Now they Baltimore seems to struggle with them. But they already beat Baltimore once. It's hard to beat a good team twice. Then you got Washington, who you never know, at Buffalo, at Cincinnati, the second time they'll see Cincinnati, Indianapolis, who's playing well now, and at Cleveland, who's going to be fired up for that last game. 16-0 is not happening. No. And if it is, I'm shocked, and I'll take all the punishment there, but no way. That being said, I really like them in the playoffs. They're going to be competitive, but this this isn't even anything like those early Big Ben teams where you had such a balance of defense and offense. Absolutely not. Because if you would have told me after week, what is it, week 10? Yeah. Who's the one undefeated team? Obviously, the only answer I would have had was the Chiefs. Yep. But Steelers, they're winning games, but they're not dominating. No, look at these games. And they're always, so they they beat the Titans 27-24. The Titans have not been good so far. They have some talent. They beat the Ravens 28-24. That was a good win. They edged the Cowboys 24-19. Then they blew out the Bengals. They did have a well-rested Ben. The Bengals stink, dude. And, like, they took advantage of the Bengals' one weakness. The Bengals have the worst linebackers in the history of the world. That Well, at least they have traditionally. So I, I'm not into the Steelers. Third take. This is where we're getting into trouble. Carson Wentz not the problem in Philadelphia. Coaching is the problem. Leave me out of this. <laughs> Leave me out of this already. You have to understand, if you're from Philadelphia, the status of the starting quarterback is not just like, it's like bigger than the presidential election we just went through. (laughs) Like, I'm old enough to remember it was Randall Cunningham versus Ron Jaworski, and that was before they were really running quarterbacks. So here's the thing. Wentz is not, show me a play where Wentz is throwing to a wide open guy. Now, Brian Baldinger from the NFL breaks down a lot of plays, and he's saying Ben is making, I'm sorry, Carson is making all these mistakes. They're not easy plays. The, then they kept throwing. There's apparently on the Giants, there's this Bradbury guy who's Darrell Rivas reinvented. They keep throwing at him. I don't get the play calling. Run a trick play. Do something. You know, throw underneath. There's just nothing easy for Carson Wentz, and I blame Doug Peterson. That's why I say Carson Wentz, Indianapolis Colts with Frank Reich in the future. You heard it here first. Just leave me out of any Carson Wentz talk. I... It okay. just seems like so dramatic in Philadelphia. Yeah. How did you deal with this? Or did you just embrace the dramatics and all the drama that came with being a sport, Philadelphia sports fan? I love it. So the big clip was Doug Peterson cursing out the fans with Angelo Cataldi. You know, I used to have a regular spot on Sports Radio WIP with Angelo. He would He's a former Philadelphia Inquirer reporter, the voice, the morning guy for decades there. He'd come on and say, Andrew, so... Carson Wentz was a terrible pick by the Eagles and so-and-so, so-and-so. Don't you agree? I'd be like, well, Angel, Andrew, that's why you're the smartest analyst in the business. He would cut me off three words in and just mess with me the whole time. He's really funny, so it's a Philly thing. Lastly, actually fourth, I have five tights. Miami Dolphins. Six and three, right? 
Pretty good team. You're an NFL fan. Name five Dolphins. Dan Marino? <laughs> no, current no. Dolphins. Oh, current Dolphins? Ooh. Yeah. Tua? Tua, yeah. And you can't go as backup. Current playing Dolphins. Byron Jones? Okay. From, from, yep, from, from the Cowboys, yep. From UConn, originally. Okay, you're a UConn grad, so that's why you know that. Correct. Remember when he was at the draft and he jumped like 70 feet in the air? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had like special inserts in his shoes. Like, yeah. Okay. Like I couldn't dream of being that athletic. That company that made his shoes tried to was going to sponsor the show, but keep going. All right, you got two. You got Byron Jones and Tua. I'm not trying to embarrass you, by the way. No, no, no. Because no, you're no. not missing any obvious right, things. Right, right. Wow. And everyone I want to say was a Dolphin either like last year or two years ago. I want to say... Uh, Ndamukong Sue, but he's on the Bucks yeah. now. But he was a Dolphin. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm out. Okay, like, you know, Devontae Parker is still there. You know, a lot of people know him because he's a fantasy. Fantasy, player. yeah. Then they're throwing to Jakeem Grant, Matt Collins, former Eagle, Mike Jacecki. You might remember from Penn State. So there's some names there, but it's and the running back has been a mishmash because they had Miles Gaskin out of Notre Dame, and then Matt Breida's filling in now because he's hurt. Then they have a guy who's awesome named Ahmed. He's really, really good. Salvan Ahmed, I have no idea where he came from. I just see him playing on Sundays. That's the thing with the Dolphins. Yes, Marvin. No, I just still yeah. don't know any of these guys. I just know two of those guys. I know they're six and three. Besides Mike Tomlin, Flores is my coach of the year. But you just took my take, Marvin. That was to say, Sorry. <laughs> this, this is coaching genius. And I saw a clip the other day of them pre-snap. They're running around the defense. By the way, the offense is the big names. The defense are even more no name. They're running around. The offense has no idea what's going on. They're torturing offenses. Brian Flores, he might be the best post-Bill Belichick Patriots guy out there. Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. Like, what he's done with this team and just changing the culture. Yeah. You know, I hate that term. I know. It sounds a little, like, cliche, but I know what you mean. It sounds really cliche, but it's for real. Like, if we would have said, hey, do you think the Dolphins are going to win six games this year? Get out of here. Okay. I, I thought they would win like four or five, but not six after 10 weeks, and let alone be six and three. Yeah. Brian Flores, coach of the year. Amazing. And I love Tua. I don't know what he's doing out there. I don't understand how he's not going to get hurt. He looks like a like a little kid playing quarterback. It's amazing. And then he throws the ball. You're like, oh, he's throwing it away. I don't know where he's going. And then it lands in the receiver's hands. Awesome. Full on. They were wearing that vintage uniform, too. Oh. Felt like it was in 1988 watching the Dolphins Jets. Phenomenal. And top five uniform color scheme yeah. in sports. Yes. Although they've kind of messed it up in recent years. When Ryan Tannehill was wearing it, it wasn't top five. But with Tua, it is top five. Is yeah. that fair to say? I think it all depends on like who's wearing the uniform also. Yeah. And it's also, all right, so if North Carolina football was Alabama, the uniforms would just look so much better if they were better. Yeah, if they of were better if they were a better team. Not for nothing, unrelated, North Carolina football, the uniforms don't match the level of yeah. talent. Well, the thing is, North Carolina always has tons of violations and tons of NFL draft guys. So like always. why are they not like they had Trubisky and Robert Quinn and I could go down the list. They had all these first round picks and never won on the field. But did you notice something in the NBA draft, by the way? Two football schools fed the top 10 of the draft, Florida State and Georgia. Where's Duke and North Carolina? So all of a sudden these football schools, because Georgia is not a basketball school. Florida State might be a basketball school now because their football is not good. But I found that interesting. 
I tweeted out last night. I'm like, look, two football schools. Well, actually, I said two football schools, or at least one football school, one team that used to be a football school. Talking about Florida State. That's not nice. Why are you starting? Not nice. All right. All right. And also, random, Duke players, a bunch of second rounders. I know. What is happening? Which was crazy. And maybe because the game is changing, because I think Vernon Carey is a stud. I know. Vernon Carey is the best college player, except for Obi Toppin. You know, I tweet about him all the time. What? What's going on there? He's gonna be, and by the way, they don't know what they're doing. They no, mess no. on Tatum. They have no idea what they're doing. This is tons of overthinking and looking at you know the sexy picks. They're yeah. looking at he's six eight. He's got a forty two inch wingspan. Okay, but he averaged eight points. And you know they're hot. They're drafting a bunch of guys like Stromile Swift. All right. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But by the way, uh, yeah, th- it's really interesting about about the Duke guys. Uh, the draft we could get into. It. I have no idea who those – every year there's like four Kentucky guys who I'm vaguely aware of that go, go in the top ten. When Patrick Williams out of Florida State were number four, I thought, man, the NFL draft is so much more recognizable because they have multiple years in college. Like, we're going to know oh, absolutely. 90% of those guys. Uh, Com- completely. Yeah. And you get to a point where, all right, so if a team is in the final four in college football or basketball, in college basketball – no one ever says this guy performed well in last year's NCAA tournament because they're gone. Like, there's nobody there for more than two years. And if you're there for more than two years, somebody's going to say, well, why are you still in school for more than two years? Yeah, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Which yeah. sounds nuts. Miles Powell, Marcus Howard yeah. didn't get drafted. I know this is a football podcast, guys. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Well, I'll, I'll bring it back. Vernon Carey Jr., his dad was a Dolphins lineman, Vernon Carey, first-round pick. Unbelievable. I just think that family is crazy. So one more side note, we're gonna left turn. Isn't it amazing that Jonathan Bones Jones, both brothers were in the NFL, he was the worst athlete of the three, and he went to MMA, which makes me think there's tons of NFL guys who could dominate MMA. Oh, absolutely. I think uh what Greg Hardy did it for a second. He did a little MMA. Yeah, but he wasn't good. Yeah, he's also well, not, that's a whole not, other, a, not a big fan. That oh me neither. But I was just saying yeah. just guys and it's a you know, it's a very aggressive sport. And I think those guys had the size and the athleticism yes. to really do well if they if they learn and if it doesn't pan out for them in, you know, football, they could just move over to MMA because even the little guys, the quote unquote little guys, they're the same size as me. You know, they're five eleven, two fifteen, yeah. which is isn't small by any stretch. So they can move on and do that. But absolutely. Um, last against the grain take, I want to see Taysom Hill just for the storyline on Sunday. I know they're going to go Jameis Winston. I mean, we're recording this on Thursday. It's going to be Jameis. Come on. How fun would it be? We just have to know. I need to know. Can this dude play quarterback? Yeah, I'm ready because Taysom Hill's 30. Like, yeah. let's do it. Like, but, like, what, like, why not? Like, you have him doing everything else. Like, just give him a shot. And I'm sure he wants to show that he's more than a slash type guy and a guy that can do some gimmick plays. I think he wants to show, like, look, I can be – a legit quarterback in this league. So I think it's time to give him, like, yep. just give him a shot. All right, well, let's get into that with Paul Burmeister. Let's bring in Paul, our old friend, right now. All right, Paul, I have a bunch of topics to get into with you, but before we dive into college quarterbacks and Notre Dame, we were just debating Taysom Hill versus Jameis Winston. It's been a big topic on the Dan Patrick Show all week. My thinking is, just as sort of an NFL fan and uh, someone in this business, I want to see Taysom Hill. I need to find out, can this guy play quarterback? What do you think? 
totally understood on kind of the the curiosity factor, and it's it's like okay, at some point it's going to be time to see if Taysom can do more, if he can excel with, with a lot more reps in a short amount of time. But I mean, Jameis Winston has five years' experience as a starting quarterback in that division, and I think as much as I would love to see Taysom Hill also. I think for four quarters, series in, series out, I think your best chance to have the kind of production in that passing game that you're used to getting with Drew Brees. Now, I don't think he's going to do as well, but I think your closest version to that is to play Jameis. Yeah, you're right. I know, but that doesn't mean, like, can we will it <laughs> into existence? would it? I also think, I think it's a little bit underrated that this guy can throw a 50-yard pass like and kind of look like a quarterback and then run a deep pattern and catch a 50-yard pass I don't know. I feel like for some reason we're undervaluing how incredibly unique this player is. Or, But Dan said, I'll bet you other guys could do that. Just nobody thinks to try it. Yeah, I totally agreed. And I've, even before this came up, McLovin, like I've had a lot, of, a lot of conversations where in that specific conversation, like I'm kind of leading the charge of like, let this guy play more. I would love to see if he could do more because he's such an exciting player at that position. But... I think you have to take a lot of things into consideration. Like I think they're half a game up in the NFC South. And if they were two games out or three games up and it was just one game for sure, maybe, but in this situation, looking where they are in the division and what they need out of that passing game, it's not like, and I think two is doing great, but it's not like defense special teams. Every other part of the game is leading the way for this team. Passing games got a whole lot to do with it. Even though Drew's a little different version of himself than he was five, eight years ago, that's still a huge, probably leading part of this team. And I just think, again, I think you've got a better chance of getting uh, a closer version of that if you go with Jameis and his talent and his experience. All right, all right, fine. You convinced me. Okay, so <laughs> I was watching Notre Dame, and I actually thought of you because I wanted to ask you about this. There was It was against Clemson, and there was a play where – Ian Book, the quarterback, was basically sacked, it looked like. But he escaped, rolled out to his right, and threw a beautiful pass downfield. And I thought, you know, this guy looks really, really good, but I don't see him in any mock drafts, which led me to the bigger question is, this year there are so many good college quarterbacks. How do I know who's just a good college quarterback and who's an NFL draft prospect? Because there's so many college quarterbacks with unbelievable statistics. Right. And keep, and I, I didn't play quarterback like you, so keep in mind, like the casual fan, how do you tell what who's a guy and who's not a guy? Yeah, I think I, you just summed it up so well. And if you had like the answer to that question, how do I tell which really productive college quarterbacks are going to be good NFL quarterbacks? Like, not that you don't have an awesome gig now, but you could be at an NFL front office if if you really had that one figured out. Um, let's start with Ian Book, and I think Ian has done such a good job of remaining who he is, but also like getting better at the downfield passing and a little bit more calm in the pocket, but he's still able to use his feet and run around and run eight to ten times a game, and th- there was a period of time where everybody was telling Ian, run less, be more calm in the pocket, mm. keep your feet steady, and he's He's better downfield, but he also hasn't gotten away from that extra threat of running. i just really proud of him and happy for him for how he's maintained that part of his game that makes him special when so many people were telling him, don't run so much, just stay in the pocket and throw. So that's that's him, first of all. But, but uh, Paul, what size is he? I see him listed at six feet. Does he have NFL six, size? Six-ish. I mean, he might be 6'1". I, 
I haven't stood next to him and really thought about it for a while, but six, I, I think six one is probably where it tops out and six might be a little more realistic. I, I did see that he just accepted an invite to the senior ball, yeah. which is awesome for him. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. So yeah, but like, um, how about the other? Like, I can let me before you say this. Like, look at some of these other stat lines for guys like uh, Matt Coral at Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin, Zach yeah, Wilson, obviously, Sam Howell at UNC, uh, Mac Jones himself, Kyle Trask. These guys are all like twenty-five touchdowns, four or five picks. To yeah. me, it's like they can't possibly be better. No, I know the the college production is amazing, and I, I think when it comes down to the NFL evaluation, it still comes down to. How much responsibility do they have? You know, once the ball is snapped, you know, some of these quarterbacks are looking over the sideline and they get told a lot. And I get it. Like we can talk about that part of it too, but it's, I mean, coaches, I mean, you can't fault them for taking advantage of how they are. They are at an advantage right now with the pace and formations and everything. And they kind of call the play and tell the quarterback what to do a lot of the time. So if I'm an NFL evaluator, I want to see a quarterback at the line of scrimmage doing NFL things before the snap making reads, figuring out the protection, and having the whole field to go through a progression. So I want to see that before it snaps. And then with, with as much as things has changed and as much as the numbers are inflated and just really amazing and in some cases out of control, it's still decision-making and accuracy. And it, if you see enough of those things, those three things, is he looking like an NFL quarterback with the responsibility pre-snap? Is he throwing with accuracy? Is he throwing with anticipation, making good decisions? I guess that's four things. Those are still the basic tenets to me, mm. even though everything on the periphery with the giant numbers and the pace and the assist from the mm. sidelines, even though those are inflated, I think the basics are, are still what they have been for a while. Yeah, you know, it's funny you said, though, if I could tell I'd be in the NFL front office, but I get the sense the NFL front office is there's a lot of guesswork, too. Like you look at the Baker Mayfield, totally. Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson draft. We're a couple years in and still not even certain what how that's all going to shake out. So it's not really an exact science, is it? Not at all. And I think a lot of it too, McLovin, comes down to coaching and coaching matters at that level. I mean, all these guys are super talented and let's assume most of them are mentally tough enough and intelligent enough to get it done. Um, a lot of those guys in that category still don't produce consistently at a high level. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to coaching. And if, you, if you're able to get into a system where you do have someone helping you and that coach is around for a couple, three years, and you're able to grow and learn from that person, I, I, I think that matters too. It's, it's not just about an individual failing. I think a lot of it has to do with the fit and the help he has around him behind the scenes too. What about this uh, revolution of short quarterbacks? Now, I was thinking of one in particular in college, Derek King at Miami. Now, I don't think Notre Dame and Miami play this year, but I imagine you've looked, you know, you've seen a little tape of him getting ready for Notre Dame. He's 5'11. You know, you wouldn't, 10 years ago, it wouldn't even be a question. There's no way he's a quarterback. Right. But is somebody like that thinking about things completely differently now in 2020? I think I think that the NFL evaluators are so much more open to different shapes of quarterbacks and different style of play. And in that way, the college game has been awesome for opening those doors. And I, I think one of the biggest myths that was out there forever was that a taller quarterback can see over the line. And I've, I'm 6'3". I played at 6'3 in the Big Ten. You don't really see over people. There's giant messes in front of you of large people 
either standing there trying <laughs> to protect you or coming at you. You don't really look over any of it if you're 6'4", or 6'1", or 5'11". You kind of find lane. You're not looking right over any lineman anyway. You're looking kind of downfield, and there are little – there's gaps. Mm. Uh, there's colors. Uh, there's openings. It, it's just you kind of learn how to look at it. But to me, none of it's ever been about looking over your lineman. And I think that the success of whether it's, I mean, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, there are a number of guys now. Drew Brees, who's a true pocket passer, who sees downfield really, really well, and he's not tall by NFL QB standards – there's been little steps along the way that have forced these guys to be open to, you know, maybe a six foot quarterback can play. And I've been in the background the entire time thinking, yes, just because you're tall doesn't mean you see the lanes downfield the way you're supposed to, because it's not so much about height. It's much more about a sense and a feel. You know, it's funny you, you bring up your height in college. Uh, I did a little research before this because I wanted <laughs> to create a narrative that, Paul Burmeister in 2020 would have been a modern-style quarterback, and that's why out of Iowa in 1994, the NFL didn't give you a fair shot. But then I actually looked at your combine <laughs> measurements. 5.1040 yard dash, what, what happened there? I, I felt like I was running a 4.8. I was so disappointed. I thought I was flying <laughs> down that stretch of 40 yards at, at the uh, old RCA Dome. I remember thinking, man, I am moving this along. It's going to be somewhere under a five and it just wasn't even close i was i'm still disappointed what i was 94 26 yeah. years later is that right yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i'm still upset about that so what was it uh were you excited to be at the combine was that a good experience for you it was awesome it was uh it was so cool and i still even you know been able to be around some pretty cool events and meet some people that i've looked up to but even then at age 22 i mean i remember being at that 40 yard dash and looking over the stands and seeing Al Davis. And I think, I think I saw Jimmy Johnson and all these people that I had been watching on TV and really, you know, having on a pedestal. Now they're there watching me. It was, it was awesome. And I was one of the throwing quarterbacks that the guys who come early and stay late. And my roommate was Gus Farratt. And Gus oh, wow. The same thing. Gus and I were there six, seven days and threw, I mean, just hundreds of balls, but it was uh, it was super fun to be there and to put myself up against that kind of talent, and it was really good for perspective. I mean, Gus played in the league for probably 15 years. Yeah. And we snuck into the RCA dome like the day before it started and like found footballs, and we just kind of were flinging them around. And I remember watching him like on the 50 yard line with ease throw one through the end zone, and that was like one of my first moments of being like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> Gus Farratt. Was he at a Tulsa? Yeah, at Tulsa. And we actually beat them the first game of my senior year. We went back and forth and ended up scoring on the last play of the game to beat them. But, so I was kind of familiar with Gus. But I remember feeling like, boy, he, he can do this a lot better than I can. And he's not even like a top pick in this draft. So there were really good like life lessons and cool memories, but really good perspective, too, about – I thought I was good enough to make it, but I just wasn't quite good enough. And the guys who make it, even the ones who don't make it as huge names, are incredibly talented and really good. I'm looking at that quarterback class. So uh, I'm assuming Heath Schuler, Trent Dilfer, yeah. someone named Perry Klein. I don't remember him. Perry Klein from CW Post got drafted by the Falcons, I think. Yeah. Then Doug Nussmeyer, who's he's a coach, yeah. right? I believe. He's a coach in the yeah. NFL now. He's been in NFL and college, yeah. And Jim Miller, is that the Jim Miller on Sirius NFL Radio, Jim Miller? 
Yeah, Bears quarterback? quarterback at Michigan State. He was uh, yeah. I, I played against him as well and spent a lot of time at the combine with him uh, at nights when stuff was over, you know, kind of getting to know him better. So th- those are kind of part of the examples of, man, it was just really fun, not only for the opportunity wise, but, you know, guys like Jim are friends now and just it, it's cool to get next to those guys yeah. that you knew about and uh, to kind of get to know them a little better off the field. Did you get uh, I, I hope this is a source by did you get invited to the senior bowl? I did not. No. Okay. Did no. you do the Shrine Game I, or any of that? Or? No. So I, I was I was a fringe guy. So I mean, that's why. I mean, Gus and I were kind of you know the last ones probably invited. Got that's it. Why we had to come early and stay late. So I was I was good enough to get invited, but had they invited five quarterbacks fewer, I, I would I would have not been in that cut. <laughs> I remember when you were filling in for Dan Patrick, you told the story about being in camp for the Redskins, I believe, right? And you didn't do the handoff fast enough, and their coach. Yes, you yeah. Like, I think the average person does not know the level of detail that the NFL quarterback has to execute because that was an eye-opening story. Yeah. No, you've got a good memory yeah. for, for dialing that one back up. But it was, I was actually with the Vikings. Oh, sorry, and, the Vikings. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was Brian Billick, who was the quarterback coach oh, and no wow. coordinator. And, and I got to know Brian really well that, that uh, spring and summer leading into camp because Warren Moon was a starting quarterback and Warren was doing sideline NBA reporting for TNT, if you remember. Um, so Warren wasn't around a whole lot. Brad Johnson was the backup. Brad was playing in NFL Europe for London. Wow. So he wasn't there at all. They drafted Chad May from Kansas State, and Chad was just pretty carefree. And like I, I was the one there all the time in the OTAs and everything. So like Brian had a you know he had a reason to be invested in me to make sure that the offense clicked along okay in April May and June got it um, but I remember that play it was a play in training camp and 11 on 11 it was scrimmage day against the Saints I think and the other 10 guys did their job and the running back would have walked into the end zone and I kind of took a play off and was half a step late and missed the missed the mesh with the with the handoff balls in the ground and that was it I, I never knew before the snap hey this this is the play yeah. That you're going to make it or not, but it was, and I, I failed. And I think that's the, you know, when you're on the fringe anyway, they're kind of looking for a reason to cut you. Yep. And that was the moment. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty good quarterback room with a hall of famer and Warren moon and I know, right? Super Bowl winning quarterback. Brad won the Super Bowl, right? Or Brad won a Super yeah. Bowl. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. Dungy told a great, your friend, Tony Dungy told a great story once on the Dan Patrick show about uh, Jacob Reed, the former Vikings receiver. Yeah, Jake Reed, yeah. Couldn't catch anything. He was having big problems, and they're like, <laughs> they're worried about this. He's like, he's talented, but he can't catch anything. Then Warren Moon came to the Vikings and hit him between the numbers on every pass. All of a sudden, yeah. he could catch anything. Because, and I always say, like, <laughs> the thing with wide receivers and quarterbacks is they, they work off together, so it's hard sometimes to evaluate who's great yeah. on their own, but I love that because, uh, I mean, so Warren Moon was, he was a cut above as I remember. He was a very oh unique gosh, talent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a perfect story you bring up about him just because it sums up Warren so well. Like he threw a ball that like, I can't even describe it McLovin. And as you and I have known each other and like, I've been really, it's fun talking to you because you're one of the guys who just loves the nuance of playing quarterback. You would have paid money to stand behind Warren and watch him throw, mm. throw balls like that. The RPMs and perfect spiral and perfect touch that the ball came in on was just every single time. It was just ridiculous and it was fun to watch, but it was also kind of humiliating because it'd be <laughs> like if, if you went to, 
if you went to a, a driving range and you know pick out the most talented guy there and you had to sit next to him or stand next to him and you think you're hitting good balls and he is effortlessly throwing it out there 310 and putting it next to the pin. I mean, that was Warren Moon every single time. Mm. So it was really fun to see and to see it up close. But it was it was another layer of perspective like, okay, I get it. I understand why you're sending me home and he's going to the Hall of Fame. This this makes perfect sense to me now. And when you think back to the fact that he didn't make it the first time in the NFL, and obviously I think that's I often know. pointed to is the racial politics of the NFL. At the time. Yeah. That's just crazy. And thank God I think that's unthinkable today that you would uh, yes. pass over somebody for something like that. But. I think that's the best snapshot of all of what, what the mindset used to be in mm. the late 70s because – I was around him in 95 and he probably, you know, owned his craft a little bit and you know, got a little better, but it's not like in 19, in the late seventies, he wasn't throwing the best ball of any prospect. I mean, that's, it's an unbelievable example of the mindset back then. You're right. Oh my gosh. I mean, and obviously the, the league has gotten much better in that regard. I also think I do, as we said, I do like the fact that they're looking at different shapes of quarterbacks like Kyler Murray, because I think Completely like right. young athletes are going to look at that and be like, you know, I don't look like Drew Bledsoe or <laughs> I'm probably dating myself with that, but I don't look <laughs> like this, you know, but I can be a quarterback. So, I, it, you know, do you see a, a game 10 years from now? And you know, the grassroots of the game, that's going to be sort of looks a lot different with quarterbacks doing different things than they were when you were coming up. Yeah, I do. I, and I think it's already started. We're seeing that. And I, I think it's going to continue more and more. I don't like, I kind of draw the line and say, you know, pocket, a, a guy whose main thing is standing in the pocket and is not a great runner and is amazingly good at that. There's still going to be room for that guy. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, you know, maybe the best thrower ever, but I mean, he, he runs well enough to be a bit of a threat, but he's getting it done from the pocket. Um, I mean, that's, there are plenty of guys who are still in the league and that's their number one thing. I think there'll be fewer and fewer. And I think there's just more and more leeway for a guy to come in and who, who creates problems because of what he can do with his feet. I mean, Kyler Murray is the best example yet. If you just look at his numbers and Chris Sims and I were doing this yesterday, just numbers wise, you're like, yeah, it's not bad. You know, high, high sixties, a little better than two to one touchdown to interception, Passing offense isn't great, isn't awful, but what D coordinator wants to play against that team? None. <laughs> Who wants to get ready to fit a defensive plan to play against Kyler Murray? Nobody. And I think that he's, he's a couple standard deviations from the mean with, with what he can do with the ball and how quick and how fast he is. But I think people will back off the height and the traditional numbers you measure just with the eye test. That like, I want that guy on my team. I want the defensive coordinator trying to put together a plan to, to reduce that guy to lesser than what he is. And that's because of everything he can do with the ball. And he's, he's a decent passer. Like he's fine. And, you know, probably move up a couple more levels that way. Uh, but it's the total threat that he is uh, that, that makes him, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the league because he's one of the biggest worries in the league for a D coordinator. You know, it's funny, too, about him. He seems to have a lot of success with the deep ball to Christian Kirk. And I noticed Russell, yeah. too. Is that is yeah. that because you don't really, you know, is that something that a short quarterback can do as well as a tall quarterback? Because you're putting a lot of air under that ball, that throw. What is it about Russell? Like, it seems like the, the ability to just drop it in like that. I think a lot of people, mm -hmm. what do they call it? Like, a, like the touch or the kiss or something? Yeah. What, what is that ability that a quarterback has? 
it's a feel. Yeah. It, it, it's a total feel. And it's one of these things where, hey, arm strength helps. It's nice if you can do that at 55 yards in addition to 45 yards. But it's really much more of a touch and a feel. Like the, the same way some guys who play hoops have a nice, mm. like you watch them shoot a three, and it's just much more perfect with the arc and the way it comes down than, than their baseline jumper from, from 12 feet out. And some guys can do it and some guys can't. And some guys that have awesome arms can't really get the touch part of it. And a lot of it is anticipation because mm. it, when you throw it a little bit earlier, you're able to throw it higher and it, it turns over in a way that a punt will turn over. And it allows the really good receiver to kind of adjust his speed to, to, to where the ball is going to come down. And I, so I think it's much more feel. And it's also anticipation than it is about arm strength or heights or any other physical abilities. Because, like, to me, Roethlisberger and Wilson are as good as anybody in the league at, at throwing that deep ball between 45 and 50 yards right where they want it. Two completely different shapes and size mm-hmm. guys. Different games, but they have the same thing. They throw it just early enough, and they're able to put a little bit of arc under it, a little bit of extra arc because when you do that, you don't have to be as perfect. You kind of allow the receiver to make a judgment and adjust his speed based off of that. Okay, well, you've given me an entree into this topic. I'm sitting on Twitter yesterday, and I get a tweet from Chris Sims. You were CC'd <laughs> on this. Chris Sims, midseason top 10 QBs from the Unbutton Show podcast. And I saw Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers. Where's Big Ben on this list? It goes Mahomes, Rogers, Wilson, Kyler Murray, Josh Allen, Deshaun, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, Ryan Tannehill. No Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah, I know. Um, first of all, it's fun doing these with Chris because there's nobody who studies it more and mm. loves it more than Chris. So, like, no matter how it comes out, and like, when there's guys I wouldn't have on there, or I guys I think should be on. He didn't do it haphazardly. Like he mm-hmm. he has his reasons and his love for it. So. That makes it, no matter where it comes out, fun, fun to sit across from and do it. But I did have a list of guys uh, that I had probably six or seven guys that were not on the top ten preseason that I thought, you know what, it'd be hard to keep these guys off here now. And Roethlisberger was one of the first ones. And when he went through it and he wasn't on there, his explanation was that you know at this point of his career the, and the way the Steelers are built – it's their defense and it's some other parts of what they're doing. They're a little more important than Ben. And the other part, and again, this is his reasoning was that the other quarterbacks he included, even though their numbers aren't as good um, winning or individual numbers, they're able to do more when the pocket breaks down, which is kind of ironic because Ben was always that guy who can get outside the pocket and do crazy things when he's running right or left. He's not doing that as much. And the way Chris sees it, He's not as good at that part of the game as the younger guys. And so that's why he has you know, Joe Burrow or Justin Herbert or Josh Allen on there uh, before Ben Roethlisberger. I agree with you that if there's one person that's not on the list mm. who should have been, it's Ben based off the winning the team is doing and the kind of way that the numbers he's putting up, I think he deserves a spot in the top 10. But Chris had a really detailed kind of heartfelt explanation as to why he was left left out. Were there any other names that jumped out to you as absent from Chris's list? 
That was the biggest one. I had uh, I had kind of jotted down in the corner. You know, I wonder how much Derek Carr and Jared Goff are going to move. I was up. wondering yeah. about Derek Carr and Jared. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. And also uh, Kirk Cousins. I was wondering about a little bit too if he's flirting he, with that. He had Kirk pretty like higher than most would have preseason. Like I want to say mm. he was between ten and fifteen. Got it. Uh, and and we, we didn't run through all, but we just did his you know his kind of midseason top ten. But I think he had Derek Carr in the summer at nineteen, and I think he had Goff at twenty four. And those are two guys I wanted to, hmm. I kind of, I think I asked him some version of, you know, which one of those two was closest. And he said Derek Carr was like, when he got down to the 10th, and I think he had Ryan Tannehill at number 10. I asked him, you know, who did you almost put there? You know, who did you stop mid-name with Tannehill and think, ah, maybe I should have this one. And he said Derek Carr was that guy. Interesting. I My counter-argument would have been, like, you got it. Fourth quarter, like, and I'm sorry, Carson Wentz has been killed, but like in the fourth yeah. quarter of a close game, I'm taking Carson Wentz. I'm taking actually Kirk Cousins over Justin Herbert, over Joe Burrow, over maybe not Ryan Tannehill, but they're, yeah. they're guys like those guys to me, and this is kind of obvious, they haven't made those game-winning drives consistently like we've seen some of these other guys do. So I, I don't know if that's even, I'm not sure that's what Chris was getting at, but I'll tell you, mm-hmm. if it's a fourth quarter of a close game and Ben Roethlisberger's on one side and Justin Herbert's on the other, everybody's betting on bet. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, in his, he's, he's not pushing it downfield. Like, if you've watched closely, and I, yeah. I, know, I know that you have, he's not pushing it downfield as much. Yeah. He has a lot of completions where he throws at 10 yards or less right yep. now just because that's what they're asking him to do now. Um, but he's still putting up big-time numbers, and obviously they're the only team that hasn't lost. So, it's, it, that, that's a, it's, to me, it's hard to keep him out of that top 10. Um, but as far as, like, having a Herbert on there yeah. – uh, you know, instead of someone like Ben Roethlisberger, or Derek Carr, and hey, I mean Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, I think their teams have two wins apiece. Yeah, that's the Chris issue. Is, the winning, you know, yeah. I know winning is not a quarterback stat. It was that's how they like yeah. the PFF guys say all the time, but it kind of is at the same time. Yeah, it's it's for a lot of people. I feel like it's a convenient thing. Like they use it in these discussions and arguments when they want to. And others will just leave it out uh, when <laughs> yeah. it's convenient for them. Chris, uh, to his credit, Chris has always, 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 in the couple of years we've been doing the show, he, he doesn't go with interceptions, completion percentage, or team winning. He doesn't put as much weight, whether you think he should or not. Mm-hmm. He doesn't put as much weight in his rankings on those. Like he, he said, I judge on talent and what they can do with me and everything around him, around him breaks down. I don't. I don't care what their record is. I don't care what their numbers are. I'm going off of what I see, off the talent I see. And that's why he has Burrow and Herbert, you know, quarterbacks of two-win teams. That's why he had them and feels good about having them on his top ten list. Awesome. Okay, last question. Actually, I'm going to have you make the case. Here's what yeah. happens. Clemson plays Notre Dame in the ACC title game. Yeah. Clemson wins. Give me your case for Notre Dame to still be in the Final Four. Okay, so we're 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 assuming that Notre Dame runs through yeah. North Carolina away yeah. from oh, Syracuse. Okay. Which by the way, I don't who knows this year, right? <laughs> right, I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so so that the, they run the, the Notre table. Dame heads into that title game. Yeah. Uh undefeated, rated number two. If if they if it's a respectable game, if it is, you know, if it's close in the fourth quarter and they ended up, you know, losing a tight one by one score, close to one score, I mean, and Clemson gets in. You have Notre Dame, who has beaten a team that's going to get in, Clemson, the defending champs, and also, and I'm sorry, they're not the defending champs, but they've beaten Clemson once, and they came close to beating them again, and that's their one loss. 
I mean, it would have to depend. Like, I, I would take them over one of the unbeaten non-Power Five. I would take them over that. Who would the other one-loss teams be? Like, who would they be up against? Uh, what are they? Well, from? like Florida, Alabama. Like, say, say Alabama. Say Florida beats Alabama in the SEC title game. They both have one loss. That'd be a tough one to. Because then Florida yeah, would get tough. in. Yeah, and uh, then you got Ohio State sitting there. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. You know, you're getting, and then would you can, you're, you know, would you consider a Cincinnati or a BYU as a, a real threat? I think a one loss Notre Dame is a no brainer over them. I, I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. And it's, I mean, I, I know the team well, and so it's easy for me to 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 support why they should be in a one loss. I think that, and I could be seen as you know biased that way. I think that the one, if I could like, kind of go in a tiny bit different lane and support this a little more. I think the one, the, the best argument for the people out there, for the court of public opinion, this Notre Dame team is so much better than the one that lost to Clemson Great. Uh, by not as much as Alabama lost to Clemson two years ago, by the way. But this team is is just so much better, in such a better position to compete with whoever they would end up against in, a, in the playoff situation. Um, I, feel, I, I feel much stronger about that than getting into a discussion about why a Notre Dame is better than an Alabama or an unbeaten BYU. I mean, there's good arguments for every single one of those teams in that situation. I do know if the Irish get in that they're much, much better than than the one that made it a couple of years ago. Yeah, I would think the committee would look at, I know they, they're not supposed to choose based on ratings, but interest level, I mean, there are a lot of national fans who want to see. I mean, you're close to it, so you might not, you might be biased, but there are a lot of people who want to see Notre Dame compete at the highest level. It's just more interesting when they're in it. Of course, I mean, and there, I think there's, there's just as many people that want to see him do well as, as want to see him fail. I yep. mean, it's the Yankees, it's the Lakers. I mean, people either either are thrilled when they do well, or you're really happy when when they fail. And I, I think that they bring that kind of national feeling. And yeah. I've always wondered how much that has to do with, with those discussions when they're, when they're, you know, the tie goes to who, yeah. you know, in that, in those discussions. <laughs> and it's probably got to come into play, doesn't it? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you remember when they put early on, they put Ohio state in over Kansas state. I mean, of course they did. I mean, it's That's a much right, bigger right? family, but uh, yeah. yeah, I got to tell you, I was looking, um, I was looking at Ian books game log and I saw the stats of that first Duke game you might not have thought that Notre Dame was headed towards the national no, title discussion. No. And then I looked at the highlights. That was a tough game. Like that, what, what early on they were not being buzzed about. There's a lot of Notre Dame fans here in our studio and they were not confident after the first couple of weeks. No, I know. Yeah. And you know, based off of that game and, and Hey, there was a game a month later against Louisville. They won 12, seven, where it was yeah. kind of a similar kind of game where, okay, the defense looks as good as we thought it was going to look, but offensively they struggled. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it feels like a long time ago. Yeah, because they put up 47 against Clemson, and they kind of did what they wanted to against Boston College, minus minus some fumbles. So, and that's a good I, defense. I, I mean, like they're talking about those, that coaching staff as being a lead on defense. I was impressed because I I watched that game pretty closely because it looked like BC might have uh, might have a chance. I thought that was almost as impressive in a different way than Clemson because they were obviously yeah. so up for Clemson. Yeah, no, true. I think it's a good point. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, thinking about Notre Dame, the three big parts of it to me that have like at this point of the season, I'm impressed by that. Maybe I'm a level more impressed than I was with the unbeaten team two years ago. 
they have two difference makers on defense that any team in the country would love to have and feature. They've got a linebacker, number six, Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, who is a major elite talent at that position. They have the same thing at safety and Kyle Hamilton. And to have th- those two kind of players at those two positions now where you, you can move Owusu-Koromoa around and play him like a safety, play him like an inside linebacker, play him like an outside linebacker, um, that's, that's an incredible thing they have. And they have the same thing in 14. So that's number one. And they're just everybody from the coaching staff to Ian himself – much more comfortable with who he is. Yep. Um, hey, you want to run for 12 yards? You do it, man. That's great. You want to run around behind the line of scrimmage and find somebody 10 yards downfield? That's great, too. Like He's, he's more comfortable in his own skin, and I feel like the system um, is more embracing that as well. And it's just um, – it's well, we'll see where it goes, but it's a team that's better equipped to, to go far than the one two years ago. Uh, how's COVID treating you? You uh, you uh, getting into Stanford at all? You go and traveling a lot? Has it changed everything about the way you're doing the fall? It changes a lot of things. It's interesting, just like, like it is for everybody. So I'm on the road with, with the Notre Dame game every weekend. They have a game, and I'm not allowed back in the building at NBC until I have a negative test. Yeah. So no, no matter where we're coming in from, and I think a couple months ago it would have been like, okay, there's some states that aren't hot spots, but now everywhere is. So – my routine is I get back, I get a COVID test set up down at Stanford Hospital and try to get the results back as quick as I can. And thankfully, they've been negative so far. And then I'm, I'm allowed to go back in and, you know, do the podcast with Chris or, or whatever else I'm doing that week. So it's um, it's part of my life like everybody else. And I, I don't know how old your kids are, McLovin, but it's the biggest part is that my kids are so limited in what they can do with yeah. school and activities. I feel like as an adult, it's like, I have the perspective. I'm like, I've got a really good job, and if I can, if I can be smart and safe and healthy, I get to keep doing it. Like, I can live with the other obstacles. I see my kids not being able to do the things they want to do at a time of life where that's all you want to do: <laughs> get to school, yep. get to your practices, play with your friends. I mean, that's the that's the biggest way. I feel like it's affected my house big time. All right, eight and ten for me, and it's the same exact issue. I've been fortunate enough that we've been able to come to Milford so far for the DP show. And I, I mean, between us, like there's a little, a lot of relief in that. Like it's good to get out of the house. And I live in an apartment in Brooklyn. So my wife's fa- fine having one less body in the house, but you know, there's yeah. no, it hasn't been easy, but you know, you're like you said, we're lucky that we've been able to do what we've been able to do. So, yeah. Yeah. How, how did they handle like coming from the state of New York to the state of Connecticut? Like how, how do those, well, that part of the fine print affect what you're doing. We have, um, actually, we have clearance from I think the Department of Homeland Security or somebody to certain jobs. You're allowed media jobs are allowed to cross state lines like that. And generally, the rule is you can commute for work is the general guideline because, I mean, not like people have real jobs <laughs> have to go cross <laughs> right. cross lines. You know, the numbers are bad in Connecticut now, but the numbers in New York yeah. they just closed the school in New York, so. Fortunately, there is some, there is some, if, if you uh, are, iHeartRadio, who helps us out with this, got us a lot of paperwork just in case. But man, day to day, I could talk to you next week and it could be a totally different situation. I, I know. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. I mean, different with the college landscape, NFL landscape, everything. I know. Oh, my God. The, yeah. This is the true day to day situation to know. Hopefully, we can hang out in Stanford soon or hang out at just the, in general soon. That would be a lot of fun. 
Yeah, for sure. I've actually, I, I nerded out on this. I've got on my, on my blackboard here in my office, all the things about quarterbacking and numbers inflation that I, I, I filled it up, which was a fun oh, exercise yes. anyway, but I've got, I've got more conversation material, good, oh. bad, or ugly. Next time you want to talk quarterback. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I'll get you on later in the season when, you know what, between like a, Right when they're voting, I want you around when they're voting for Heisman or when the Heisman uh, race heats up because you can't do it on statistics. Because I, I know, I know. Yeah. Who do you think the finalists are? Like, well, who, are you, who are your three guys or four guys in New York? Just based on like, it's a narrative award, let's face it. So, Trevor, obviously, they want to give it to because he's been. You think still? I mean, yeah, he's been the two games. No, I mean it because like they want coming in, they wanted to give it to him as yeah. a reward for three years. So, yeah. I think Mac Jones has been fantastic for Alabama. Mm-hmm. I would think he's in it. Kyle Trask can make a run now, especially if they happen to beat Alabama. So I think he's got a chance. And Zach Wilson. Then, whew, uh, I don't know. Maybe the running back at Alabama is the other one. But am I missing anybody? Those seem to me like the obvious ones. I mean, it's it's on my mind just because I'm around the team every week. But if they go unbeaten, yep. and, you know, Ian Book hasn't thrown a pick since the first game. Yep. Um, I mean, is he the last guy invited? I mean, is yeah, he, maybe. he in the conversation? I don't know. Uh, by the way, there's a quarterback, Malik Willis, at um, Liberty. Oh, I don't know if you got it. You probably haven't had a chance to look at Liberty. I saw the Vatek highlights, but I've, I've not seen him. Oh, man, he is so good. But again, really? and like this gets to your board of numbers inflations. I don't know. I mean, I think I see him and he just does whatever he wants. And he, but he's throwing the guys are open. So it's just like the numbers are so good that I don't know. But I, I think he's going to possibly be a guy. Maybe sneak into the Heisman conversation late. You know, there's a lot of football wow. left, too. What about I Justin? Oh, I forgot Justin Fields. Justin Fields, if he can get five games going, he's another guy, right. right? Yeah. No, I mean, and it's like Ohio State receiver. Ohio State receivers running wide open yeah. all day long. I mean, it's but you know we're seeing that more in the NFL too. I mean, yep. did you watch like Josh Allen against Seattle a couple weeks ago? I mean, yep, he, he played really well. But my gosh, guys are unimpeded all over the field. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, I don't know. You know what? I like the fast guys like Tariq Hill and and Hollywood Brown and some of the. I know. Oh, the rookie rugs when they. They beat their coverage so bad that when the ball gets there, the defender's not even in the camera shot. <laughs> like some of those guys. Or Tyreek Hill, who's like the best receiver, the scheme will be such that they'll miss him. Like no safety will pick him up. And there's no one within 30 yards in Kansas City. I know. I, I, I'm telling you, I swear. I had two occasions where I was watching Buffalo against Seattle a couple weeks ago, and I went to the All-22 on Game Pass because in my notes I'm like, are they playing with 10? Yeah. <laughs> Are they missing a guy? I, yeah. I, I swore that they were missing a guy because people were so open. Um, oh, by the way, so uh, Stefan Diggs is amazing there, obviously. Yeah. So, uh, how good is that rookie in Minnesota who took Diggs' place, Justin Jefferson? He looks like a 10-year vet. I know. I know. It, it was a fun class to evaluate coming out. Yeah. But, I mean, there were so many receivers that felt like they were, like, legit first-round guys. And it's, it's fun to – just like it's great for the league to have – so many young quarterbacks that are promising. Yeah. It, it's I think it's cool to see all these rookie receivers doing well too. Yeah, Chase Claypool, it's great. All right, Paul, I've taken up your time. I appreciate it, but uh, yeah, now you've you've already booked yourself again for later in the season. I love it. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll be ready to roll. Okay, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thanks. That was Paul Burmeister, NBC Sports, voice of Notre Dame football. Great job as always. Apparently not. Not so much of a combine performer. I, I, I left out something. He had a 29-inch vertical. 
not great, but it always has great points on quarterbacks. And this is the fun topic of this year, having so many amazing quarterbacks to evaluate in college and the pros. Chris Sims's rankings, that's a whole nother thing. But we will uh, maybe we'll dive into that next week. Meanwhile, I really appreciate you listening to Against the Grain. Uh, almost Thanksgiving. We will uh, we'll get into that. I have a lot of thoughts about the Thanksgiving game. I'm just so ready to overreact and have a great time with everything football. Thanks for listening to Against the Grain. Hit you back next week. Against the grain.